Which company has installed the most solar? And why is the Dutch government threatening to buy out farms? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Bechtesphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hoke, a climate communicator. Let's jump right into today's news. Hey y'all, how's it going? So today I'm going to try something a little different with the climate recap structure. I'm still just playing around with the different options for the way that I can talk about the news. So I'm doing less stories, but talking about each of them longer and going a little more in depth with each of them. So anyways, let's get right into it. The Solar Energy Industries Association recently released its 2022 Solar Means Business Report, which looks at which companies have installed the most solar recently in the U.S. Does anyone want to take a guess on which company is in first place? It's Meta. Yes, the company that can't seem to figure out how to reduce clean energy misinformation on its platforms is running solar-powered circles around the rest of the private sector. Meta has installed almost 3.6 gigawatts, the vast majority of which came online starting in 2020. 2020 and 2021 were big years for Meta's solar endeavors. Meanwhile, Amazon lags in second place with only a little over 1.1 gigawatts installed. Apple's in third place with slightly more than 987 megawatts. Overall, U.S. companies installed nearly 19 gigawatts of on-site and off-site solar during the first nine months of 2022, which is about double the amount installed in 2019. SEIA estimates that the U.S. companies are responsible for about 14% of the solar installed in the U.S. right now and is expected to see the number of gigawatts companies installed double over the next three years. Nearly 27 gigawatts of off-site corporate solar projects is scheduled to come online by 2025. In addition to that, more More than 75 multinational corporations are collaborating with 14 countries to build solar on their land, which could potentially equate to about $100 billion in clean energy infrastructure investments. This effort is part of the U.S. State Department's Clean Energy Demand Initiative with the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance. The partnership was actually just recently announced during COP27, the recent UN climate conference that took place in Egypt last month. Some members of the alliance are Nike, Amazon, and HP. Now let's look at a darker side of clean energy, forced labor and slavery. Despite what clean energy opponents want people to think, environmentalists do look at clean energy pitfalls head on. How else are we going to make the industry better? A report by Australia's Clean Energy Council laid out human rights abuses in clean energy supply chains. Here's the gist. 40 to 45% of the world's solar-grade polysilicon is made in the Zhejiang region of northwestern China, where about 2.6 million Uyghur and Kazakh people have been subjected to coercion, re-education programs, and internment. This statement echoed what a UN report released earlier this year revealed, which prompted the U.S. government to list polysilicon from China under products made from child or forced labor. Between 15 and 30 percent of the world's cobalt, which is used for battery production, comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where Amnesty International found children as young as seven working for less than two dollars a day in hazardous conditions without protective equipment. It has resulted in some contracting hard metal lung disease. Meanwhile, for wind 
energy balsa wood used in turbine blades reportedly comes from workers in Ecuador's Amazon region that are subjected to substandard labor conditions and sometimes only paid with alcohol and drugs. The balsa wood industry might also contribute to Amazon deforestation and be impacting land rights for indigenous people in Peru. Some balsa wood suppliers have recently needed to provide proof of a Forest Stewardship Council certification, which ensures sustainable forestry practices and fair labor treatment and compensation. And that concept of certification shows a glimpse of how we can solve these supply chain abuses. The Clean Energy Council is using this report to argue for the implementation of a globally recognized certificate of origin scheme to keep better track of how these products are made. Australia and the U.S. were recently discussing their want to significantly reduce reliance on China for clean energy products, too. Last Friday, more than 600 climate activists under 26 years old, led by Greta Thunberg, marched through the Swedish capital to file a lawsuit against the government over insufficient climate action. The activists claimed that this inaction violates their human rights. According to the group Aurora, which helped the activists file the lawsuit, this is the largest case to go through the Swedish legal system. Sweden has a goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2045, but currently emissions associated with its energy and manufacturing sectors are actually going up right now. This recent legal case has been in the works for more than two years, but now comes on the heels of Sweden's September general election, which has resulted in the government moving further to the right. The nationalist Sweden Democrats, who gained seats in the country's parliament, due to anti-immigration views is the only party that does not support Sweden's decarbonization goals. In October, Sweden's new leadership removed the Environment Ministry, which the country has had since 1987. Now the Environment and Climate Minister must work under the Ministry of Enterprise and Energy, which sounds very symbolic to me. Before all of this, Sweden ranked second in best climate policies behind Denmark, according to the Climate Change Performance Index. The new government sees nuclear as a way to further decarbonize the country's energy sector, which mostly runs on nuclear and hydropower now. The new administration also dropped how much biofuels are required in gas to lower gas prices, which could result in an increase in transportation emissions, depending which biofuels they're referring to and how those were made. The country has a goal of reducing transportation emissions by 70% by 2030. Speaking of lawsuits, 16 Puerto Rican municipalities are suing ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, and other big oil corporations for colluding to downplay the risks of using their product, which has resulted in more deadly storms for the island nation. Just as a very quick little lesson for any of you that might not know, burning fossil fuels releases carbon and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that trap the sun's heat so less can escape, warm the air to even one degree Fahrenheit higher, and you will increase how much moisture the air can hold by 4%. That's more to fuel hurricanes, which subsequently drops more water on land. Then pair that with sea level rise and warmer waters, and you have more deadly storms that intensify faster, dump more water, and last longer over land. The lawsuit accuses big oil companies of not being honest about this serious side effect of continued fossil fuel use, despite their own scientists publishing papers showing climate change's impacts back in the 80s. Now, Puerto Rico is still reeling from Hurricane Fiona, which hit as a strong Category 4 in September after never fully recovering from Hurricane Maria, which hit Puerto Rico as a Category 5 back in 2017. Hurricane Maria dumped a record 41 inches of rain on parts of the territory. A subsequent 2019 study published in the Geophysical Research Letters found climate change made a Maria-like hurricane once a drop over 20 inches of rain, five times more likely back in 2017. And this likelihood 
it's likely increasing in the future. While we don't have any climate attribution study for Hurricane Fiona yet, Fiona dropped 28 inches, which is also above that 20 inch mark. So these findings seem to support the Puerto Rican municipalities claims that climate change is worsening due to fossil fuel use. All the fossil fuel companies listed that responded to requests for comment accused the plaintiffs of wasting lots of taxpayer money and distracting from climate change. What? You know what wastes taxpayer dollars? Dealing with more expensive climate disasters. The busy 2017 Atlantic hurricane season alone cost Puerto Rico $294 billion worth in damages, according to the lawsuit. About 4,600 people died in events related to hurricanes Irma and Maria, not to mention the infrastructure damage that never really got fixed. So I'll keep you posted on how this suit goes as I learn more, but that could take a while. This suit is far from the first example of a city suing a fossil fuel company in the U.S. and fossil fuel giants have mastered the art of judicial battle. Where do you think all those windfall profits are going? To the best lawyers money can buy. Fossil fuel companies want to get the cases up to the conservative-leaning Supreme Court, which they see as more favorable to them than state courts. In October, the Supreme Court asked President Biden to decide whether they should take up a case or leave it to the states. As far as I know, Biden hasn't made a decision yet, and I'm not sure why. So that's where we are in that case and in these kind of cases in general. Germany recently signed a 15-year liquefied natural gas or LNG deal with Qatar Energy and ConocoPhillips starting in 2026. So this isn't even going to help the current energy crisis situation. You probably know Qatar as this year's host of the World Cup. Where do you think that they got all their money to buy FIFA? Fossil fuels. Qatar mostly deals with Asian countries, but it's attracting desperate European countries now since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Germany's Chancellor Schultz welcomed the deal, calling it a building block for Germany's energy security. Nothing says security like supporting a different authoritarian regime. Fossil fuels make up almost half of Germany's power supply, with about a third of that coming from gas. Germany has a goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2050, but this 15-year agreement locks in Europe's largest economy into longer fossil fuel use. Shipping the LNG overseas instead of piping it directly, like was in the case with Russia, makes the fuel even more carbon intensive too. And again, we're trusting another authoritarian regime for energy supply. Not really sure how that's learning your lesson. The Dutch government put two to 3,000 peak polluting farms and industrial facilities on notice that it will buy them out if they don't get their nitrogen oxide and ammonia emissions down to comply with EU mandates. The Netherlands is the second largest farm exporter in the world behind the US, so this mandatory buyout announcement is a big deal. Nitrogen oxide mainly comes as a byproduct of fertilizer use and is the third most important greenhouse gas to curb behind carbon dioxide and methane. In fact, it's 300 times better at trapping in heat than CO2. It's just not as common as CO2. The agriculture sector is responsible for 45% of the Netherlands' ammonia and nitrogen oxide pollution. Nitrogen chemical runoff is also harmful to the local environment because it can cause algal blooms that poison the local waterways. Farms under fire are located near more environmentally sensitive areas. The government's nitrogen minister, yes, they have a nitrogen minister, don't you? Said the state will offer farms over 100% of their value to quit. And if farms refuse that offer and don't drop emissions, then they will have forced buyouts beginning next year. The government has a goal of reducing agriculture emissions by 30% by 2030, and this mandatory buyout announcement comes after months of pro-farmer protests across the country because of Netherlands trying other methods. 
besides this one. The nitrogen minister says that the scheme will be made as attractive as possible to help farmers reduce emissions. The plan is seen as a last-ditch effort by the government after a voluntary buyout program failed to yield much emissions reduction. Additionally, a 2019 court ruling determines that any farmer facility that uses nitrogen must obtain a permit due to how bad it is for the environment. This stalled new farms and buildings from being built, forcing the government to come up with a nitrogen reduction plan. Farmers are furious by this mandatory buyout announcement, claiming that the agriculture sector is being unfairly targeted for emissions reduction while other sectors like aviation get ignored. For clarification, agriculture is responsible for at least 33% of global emissions, while aviation only accounts for about 2%. So... That's not the same thing. Also, aviation is a much harder to decarbonize sector than agriculture. There are so many more easy solutions in agriculture to reduce emissions than there are in aviation. Apples and oranges. But anyways, I understand that reducing agriculture emissions is a much more disruptive process for people's livelihoods than reducing emissions in other sectors, and that matters. Canada just released a climate adaptation plan. Being up north, Canada is heating up two to three times faster than the rest of the globe. The country is seeing less snowpack, hotter days, and more wildfires, and these climate extremes are already impacting the economy. A report by the Canadian Climate Institute published in September projects that climate change will half Canada's economic growth by 2025. This will not be felt equitably as lower income households are expected to lose out the most, potentially seeing a 12 to 19 percent drop in income by 2100. That same report found that every dollar spent on adaptation measures saves 13 to $15. This includes both direct and indirect economy-wide benefits. So taking a proactive approach can half the potential economic losses brought on by climate change. So to do that, the Canadian government recently pushed $1.2 billion towards helping people and the environment adjust over the next five years. The National Adaptation Strategy for Canada has been in the works for the last two years and focuses on five areas, disaster resilience, health and well-being, nature and biodiversity, infrastructure, and the economy and workers. The government wants to see a measurable decline in the number of people harmed by climate extremes, with one part of the proposal recommending eliminating all extreme heat deaths by 2040, and another stating all new infrastructure investments should comply with climate-related standards by 2030. The plan also emphasizes the importance of First Nations leading climate resiliency efforts and contains a part focusing on providing the nations with opportunities and means to institute their own adaptation and conservation initiatives. The head of the intact Center on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo, Blair Feltman, said he gives this plan a B plus or A minus. Right now, the plan has a lot of good statements and doesn't provide much of a clear roadmap or plans to target financing past this graphic, which places the action plan to be released in the beginning of next year. So hopefully we will have more details soon. The U.S. plans to auction off more than 958,000 acres of Alaska's Cook Inlet on December 30th for new oil and gas projects. This was part of the deal President Biden made with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin to get him to vote yes on the Inflation Reduction Act. Being a coal baron and a top fossil fuel-funded congressman, he's always the holdout to get anything climate-related done through the Senate. And that's exactly why Georgia's Senate race between Reverend Warnock and Herschel Walker will determine whether Democrats 
Democrats truly have the Senate majority. Granted, they lost the House, so Congress will likely experience a stalemate for the rest of Biden's presidency, but I digress. Manchin got Biden to agree to lease sales in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico in exchange for the U.S. passing what was still the largest climate bill in the country's history. I did a whole video on the IRA if you want to learn more. This Alaska lease sale was previously supposed to happen back in May, but the Biden administration canceled the sale citing lack of interest. So Manchin made them bring it back. But here's the trick. Biden only promised to hold lease sales. The lack of interest might still be there. Less companies have wanted to develop in that area. So there's also potentially ways for the Biden administration to block any production from happening on these lands. For example, he could increase the cost of fossil fuel activities by adding the social cost of carbon to it. The social cost of carbon is a price addition to account for the environmental and health impacts of doing an emitting activity. He hasn't shown any indication so far that he will do something like that, though. The International Energy Agency has stated that we cannot afford to build any new fossil fuel projects if we want to keep warming well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, which we definitely want to. Lastly, six companies announced an initiative to create a carbon capture and storage verification system to make sure projects will work as their companies claim that they will once they're completed. The effort is led by the Colorado-based environmental data and software firm Project Canary and the hydrocarbon exploration company Denberry Resources, which uses CO2 injections to boost oil recovery. Project Canary CEO explains the team's goal like this, quote, We're not creating another standard. Instead, we're developing an update framework to differentiate projects, players, and molecules. CCS is rapidly growing, and we hope federal and or state regulators will recognize this framework. Carbon capture and storage is tricky because at this point, it's needed to curb emissions fast enough to avoid catastrophic climate change, but it can quickly be used by fossil fuel companies or other top emitting industries as a way to greenwash themselves into sticking into the future for longer. Right now, the technology is mostly unreliable, with many projects underperforming their projected uptakes. CCS is really still a good decade or two out from being scalable, so it can be difficult to know how much money to prioritize towards it because tech is important, but we need to start decarbonizing now. In hopes that some incentivizing subsidies will speed up the technological development, though, the recent U.S. Inflation Reduction Act includes subsidies for carbon capture technology. Unfortunately, that means that carbon that is then used to further oil recovery is also in line for subsidies, but so can using carbon dioxide for soda or storing it underground. The bill also allocates billions towards research and development of CCS pilot and demo projects. When carbon capture is scalable, it will then need a good verification system. So this proactive approach is probably a good thing. And that was your climate recap for the day. If you want more climate stories, I got you with a few more stories in the source list for honorable mentions. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Beckosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.